Welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why it will always be a photo finish between Reynolds and Tucker for the greatest fictional Malcolm of all time. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, whose strength is as the strength of 10 because his heart is pure. Good morning, Ellie. Hey, Frank. As always, we'd like to thank everybody for their comments, both positive and negative, uh, both their tweets and their uh, comments and reviews on iTunes, and urge everyone to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in pulchritude. Ratings actually really do oh, matter. Rich. Yeah, we're going highbrow this week. Ratings actually matter, so please take a few seconds and give us a couple stars. If you have a few minutes, write a review. If you have time to tweet, you have time to write a review. Marcus, we're looking directly at you. our eye has fallen upon you run if you can (laughs) and we'd like to thank our new friends uh over at another podcast called uh, minutia men Uh, it's a great little thing they kind of just delve into small little obscure things and talk about it in a pretty humorous way they're good guys uh they left us a very nice review and uh, we're now twitter friends with them so uh again please rate us review us follow us on twitter uh you know just basically become involved with us that's what we're looking for uh, today we're going to be joined by another member of the Truman National Security Project, Matt Zeller. Uh, Matt is the co-founder of No One Left Behind, a Truman National Security Fellow and an adjunct fellow at the American Security Project. He's also the author of Watches Without Time, uh, which chronicles his experience serving as an embedded combat advisor with the Afghan security forces in Ghazni, Afghanistan in 2008. He earned a BA in government from Hamilton College and an MPA and an MAIR from the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. He is a former congressional candidate, a former CIA officer, uh, an all-around great guy. Uh, but before we get to Matt, we're going to run through some of the things that are going on right now. Frank, why don't we start with the update from the war on the war on corruption? The war on the war on the corruption. News from the front. This week, Venal Pack spot, the Venal Pack spotlight uh, shines as it does so often, in, or at, le- at least in our hearts, uh, on Jason Chaffetz, uh, whom we congratulate on signing a lucrative deal with Fox News. Lesser men, lesser men confronted with having totally asked up their admittedly quite modest leadership role in Congress, uh, as Chaffetz did, might have indulged in finding the strength to carry on and do their duty for the rest of their term. Not for Jason Chaffetz, this kind of moralistic showboating. Uh, Chaffetz, of course, did the honorable thing, which is to find the nearest exit uh, for admirably spurious reasons uh, by way of preserving his political ambitions in Utah, and then recently signed an extremely remunerative deal with uh, Fox. And this was this kind of naked abrogation of responsibility and shameless self-promotion is exactly the kind of leadership Venal Pack expects from its champions, and we are pleased to honor uh, Jason Chaffetz once again. Having said that, if you're well enough to go back to work Jason Chaffetz, you are well enough to face me in the octagon. Congratulations, Congressman. And just so you know, Vegas oddmakers have eight to one underdog to Frank. So put your bets down now. Yes, Moving on. I'm looking for this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be uh, it's it's going to be quite a thing. Uh, and when I do more than sprain his ankle or whatever happened last time. Okay. Uh, resistance and its discontents. The resistance is discontented, as it so often is, uh, and not without good reason. And the discontented uh, are resistant. 
That's exactly right. We, are, we, we, the owned, trolled, and furious, are resistant and discontented. Uh, this week, uh, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, saw fit to unburden himself of a number of tweets, some of which were directed at uh, uh, Morning Joe co-host Mika Brzezinski. They were, to put it mildly, his usual stone-cold misogyny and uh, terrifying uh, dementia uh, on full display. And and it's uh, I mean you can we're not going to go over what he said you can look at you can look it up yourself it was exactly what we've come to expect from Donald Trump and his relations with women especially women who criticize him uh, but it does illustrate an interesting problem I think uh, with the resistance the common resistance line which is to point to a problem and say this is not normal and f- first of all we want to be clear we fully accept that the president of the United States. Uh, taking to a public forum to uh, uh, criticize the appearance and, and conduct of, a, of another private citizen out of sheer goddamn meanness is is, is indeed not typical, <clears throat> certainly for the president, and is and is without question beneath the dignity of the office uh, to the extent that the office has any dignity left. So we are not saying this is a normal or a necessarily laudable thing, but the way that that phrase "this is not normal." Uh, is is you know there there's some con- there we have a couple of concerns with it that we wanted to get into a little bit. Yeah, and you know while we dive in, uh, we'll we'll plug a good friend of ours, uh, um, Graham West, uh, another Truman Truman uh, staff member. Uh, Graham of Arabia is his Twitter handle, and he uh, went off on a little bit of a tear this morning. It's worth checking it out on Twitter. Uh, it's at come for the anger, stay for stay for more anger. Yeah, at Graham of Arabia. Um, so here's the thing. This is not normal. Yeah, it was a great rallying cry for a long period of time. But here's the trouble. It is normal for him. And this is the new normal for all of us. And the trouble with continuously going back and forth about this is not normal and highlighting every little thing that this president does or says and just saying this is not normal but not saying what we're going to do about it is a big, big problem. You know, when, when he was running, there was all this talk that he'd mature into the office or he would change. The GOP, writ large, pushed this line saying, we will control him. He will mature. He'll have good people around him to control him. This is how they justified supporting him so that they could get their tax cuts and deregulation underway. Uh, obviously, with neither of those things happening quite, quite in the way that they want to, we'll see how long that line of thought has, will continue. But, you know, the side, uh, the, the side point to all of that is, you know, the 16 people or whoever ran against him for the 2016 GOP primary and lost to Donald Trump should never be allowed to run for any office of any kind ever again and probably should just be put off on, you know, ice flues into the Arctic. I'm looking directly at Marco Rubio. Um, but look, guess what? The vulgar, despicable, narcissistic 70-year-old man-child didn't change. In fact, as some of us expected, he's actually a whole lot worse uh, with having the power of the Oval Office behind him and having the nuclear codes makes it all that more terrifying. It's terrific that Seth Meyers, Trevor Noah, Stephen Colbert, and Samantha Bee have material every week, but to what end? Again, only John Oliver is the one making an ask of his audience on, on an occasion and actually focusing on policy as opposed to the person. And this is what starts, this is what really concerns me about all of this. It's not that this is not normal, therefore we should just ignore it and go on trying to legislate and other sorts of things. It's, this is now our new normal. We need to approach him as a politician, as the holder of the office, and stop pretending that he's going to be impeached tomorrow because the la- this tweet is going to throw the House GOP overboard and start the impeachment process. It's not going to happen. It's more than likely he'll be reelected at, at current, at current prices. 
<laughs> sure. The futures market on Donald Trump is not as bad as it should be. Uh, but but even without necessarily looking at 2020, you're absolutely right. Like the idea that there is going to be that any one of these tweets is going to turn that, that, that any one of these tweets is going to turn enough Republican legislators against him to make them actually do something about his leadership is is a fantasy. There is no bolt from the blue that is coming to solve this problem for us. Uh, and as a result, the, mo- the only meaningful kind of resistance to Donald Trump right now, while we certainly can and should uh, identify a lot of these behaviors as absurd and troubling and all the other stuff they really are, uh, the only meaningful kind of resistance to him is resistance to his agenda. Uh, and we need to stop giving Republicans cookies for criticizing him for his remarks and uh, and then voting in absolute lockstep for his agenda. Because the truth is, most of what he's pushing through is, I think it was David Roth who said that Trump is basically David a kind D. of... Roth or... Is David J. Roth, the sports writer. Yeah, it was David, it was David Roth who said a lot of things, often at high volume. Um, it was David Roth, the sports writer, I think, who uh, who said that Trump is basically a kind of replacement-level 70-year-old Fox News viewer. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of what he's pushing, is, and a lot of you know, a lot of the agenda that's either being that he's either pushing or is being pushed in his name, uh, is uh, the work is you know is pretty bog standard is where the Republican Party has gone now. It's pretty bog standard Republican stuff. It's enabled and, and caused by the Republican Party. Fighting that agenda is the actual is the actual focus. Right. Uh, you know, be. Bruce Bartlett in uh, Political Magazine uh, last week. He was a uh, Secretary of Education under Reagan, I believe, and has been a Republican pundit for quite some time. Made a big deal of being a never Trumper. Uh, said he voted for Hillary. Um, he had a very interesting article this week. Uh, it essentially sort of traced the lineage of how the Republican Party ended up with Trump, uh, sort of the death of the uh, right-wing think tanks that were actually thinking and coming up with policy, them turning into political institutions. Uh, you know, Heritage turned into the Heritage Fund, and Jim DeMint came out with these lunatic ideas that I'd rather have 30 ideologues than a 60-person majority and this kind of you know absurdities. So, yeah, David Roth is dead on target. Donald Trump is every Fox viewer. And the Republican Party is using either his popularity or the fact that they can now do things behind closed doors that are so egregious and disgusting that they can sweep it under the under the kind of cover of saying, well, Donald Trump's a terrible person, but we're going to take away all your all your health care. And yeah, it's enough, yeah. somehow that's acceptable or Donald Trump is going to gut the State Department. To the point that uh, Elon Goldenberg, who's a former uh, State Department official himself, had an interesting tweet storm this morning where essentially he lined up all the changes that are happening in the State Department and compared to if that were happening in the military, how just batshit insane people would be going right now. And it's a great point. Um, but again, the Republican Party, we're essentially like, like, Frank, like Frank, as you just said, you know, giving cookies to Lindsey Graham and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and... Ben, ben Sass for saying negative things about Donald Trump, yet they are pushing an agenda that he essentially ran on and was elected, elected on. Yeah, they own his agenda. They own, and, and this is that, you know, resistance to that is where the game is. Uh, and to be fair, like the biggest part of this is the is the setback to the HCA uh, or, you know, whatever the acronym, the BCRA or whatever the hell it is, uh, the, the Senate health care, <clears throat> the Senate health care bill. <clears throat> it's that that having been. You you mentioned that Republicans have sort of have you know while have attempted have, have attempted to do a number of things behind closed doors, uh, really from you know from the get go when they had the ethics vote in the dead of night uh, that you know, that even before Trump's inauguration they really came back and bit them. Uh, the HCA was I mean the entire way they tried to push the Republican health care bill as we saw was to do the thing quickly and secretly, uh, and they weren't able to do that. And some of it I think was that the idea that that could be pushed through to a vote. 
with speed and secrecy was just, I don't think, ever a realistic option. But some of some of the friction that they incurred along the way toward attempting to do this was probably the result of uh, was probably the result of friction from various resistance groups, you know, calling, you know, you know, lobbying, making noise, uh, call, you know, calling, uh, calling legislative offices, contrary to what some people might say, it actually does work if you do it the right way. Uh, that's, you know, that kind of like action, that, that kind of resistance to the agenda is really where the game is. And that's the best way to deal Trump a blow. Uh, so I guess what we're saying is it is not, it is not our position that pointing out that Trump is vile and vulgar and what he's doing is wrong is, is somehow inappropriate or a waste of time. That sh- a, a opposition to Trump should not be mistaken for or conflated with opposition to his agenda, which is where the real game is. Right. I mean, it's essentially we all feel great when we, you know, see the hilarious tweet making fun of something stupid that Donald Trump says or see the clip from Seth Meyers or whatever else it might be. But it can't that can't be it. Yeah. Yeah. It's I guess the, the, the point is the resistance has there's there's a danger, I think. And and I'm not quite sure to be you know, there's a danger that this that this form of resistance could turn very easily into a kind of uh, specifically anti-Trump click to, uh, you know, clicktivism or whatever, you know, whatever the term is now. Um, and, and to be fair, like sometimes it's hard to know what to do. Sometimes there's, and I think some of it is, you know, sometimes bad, these bad things are happening. There's not that much that you can do, at least in the short term. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think the opportunity to, to fight the agenda will come back around again. Um, and, you know, and I think there are good people doing good things. One thing that I will say, uh, just on the sort of the, this is not, this was not meant to be a, a segment on the state of the resistance, but one of the things that's sort of worth pointing out is, you know, all of these resistance groups that have turned up, uh, you know, indivisible, rise stronger, uh, you know, some of the other groups like they have, you know, there were sort of these grassroots organizations that popped up, uh, to, to fight back against Trump are really struggling to raise money. Um, the, the, the money in the democratic party isn't really moving. I guess we, maybe we spent it all in Georgia. I don't know. Um, and as a result, like this resistance thing is is in Kuwait, and ultimately, the money is going to have to start is going to have to start moving. The doors are going to have to start getting knocked. That's where the real fight of this is. Um, so, you know, by all means, make note of Trump's, you know, I and mean, I was going to say idiosyncrasies. That's much too kind a word uh, of his of his significant personal and moral failings. Uh, that's. It's filth. Yeah, make, that's exactly right. Make note of Trump's filth. Uh, that's not going to be ultimately Trump's filth is not going to be on the ballot in 2018. What is going to be on the ballot is his agenda and whether or not we have a persuasive alternative to it. Yeah. And so you know, jumping back into uh, the AHCA or the BCHA or Trump Care, Ryan Care, whatever mm-hmm. it is, uh, you know, one thing that we've touched on a couple times on this program and in conversations with a few people last weekend there is still this myth of Mitch McConnell's geniusness in some kind of Bengali, uh, uh, you know, control of every aspect of everything. And he's playing, you know, three-dimensional chess where the rest of us are playing Uno. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The myth of McConnell's infallibility is something that I've heard basically since I got to D.C. Uh, and, I mean, look, the man is... The man is a is a canny parliamentary politician and a reasonably gifted structural political thinker. There's no doubt about it. Um, but he is not ten feet tall, bulletproof, and capable of seeing through time. And and the and the failure to uh, to get the Senate uh, bill to a vote in a timely fashion is is you know is evidence of this, right? That was I don't. I don't think that was ever a reasonably realistic proposition for him. It's just the the majority is just too narrow. 
in the original piece of work, the bill they were sent from the House, what they could conjure up there, the Senate, the idea that the Senate was somehow the Senate is is not immune to the same pressures that the House feels. Um, the House feels them more strongly because they're for all the reasons that they, because it's designed to feel this this pressures more strongly than the Senate. But the Senate is not immune to those. And and the Republicans are presently being pulled in two different directions. And we talked about this a little bit last week, the reasons that different different Republican senators are opposing the bill. Um, you know, Heller uh, was, you know, of, of Nevada was opposing it because um, it is, it, he, first of all, he's uh, he faces a difficult reelection and it's not a popular bill in his state. A number of Republican governors have come out against it as well, all on the grounds of this is this is sadistic. Uh, this is a you know this is a monstrous attempt to take healthcare to take healthcare away from uh, uh, poor and working people in this country and give the saved money to uh, the top five percent in, in uh, tax cuts. And on the other side, so that is one poll of the Republicans. This this is too far f- even for us. On the other side uh, are the Ted Cruz's of the world. This is not nearly far enough. Uh, you know, there is, and, and you saw some of that with the Freedom Caucus in the House, right? Like that, that impulse that there's one side of the Republican Party that thinks they're going too far, one side that thinks they're not going nearly far enough over the over healthcare is that that conflict exists within the Senate Caucus as well as in the House, and the idea that there was going to be a bill that could be constructed, you know, discussed secretly, passed through, and passed in the face of a of a very negative CBO score. Taken straight to vote and passed, uh, in, you know, in you know, in you know, lickety split. I don't think was ever a realistic expectation, and yet McConnell pursued, proceeded on that basis. Now, it is not clear to me if he had any other option because the longest this stuff is out in public, the longer this is out in public, the worse it begins to look. Uh, so I think maybe he had no choice to go hell for leather. At the same time, there has been a kind of counter narrative that has developed after McConnell decided, you know, we're not going to be able to take this to a vote. We have to go into recess. We'll come back and figure We'll come back and have a vote afterward. Uh, there's been a counter narrative like, well, that was always his plan. Uh, everything is not always Mitch McConnell's plan, right? It's not, I mean, he, did, you know, he didn't write the book of the universe. It's not like everything is proceeding according to like the genius of Mitch McConnell, right? I don't know. Cole's coming back. Donald Trump told me. Yeah, sure. That's yeah, exactly. So you know, maybe you know, maybe it is. It'll employ you know eight people, and it'll it'll employ eight. It'll employ one person for every mountain it blows up. Um, so it would, actually, that's that's not too far from the actual ratio. Uh, incidentally, for those of you who've seen the direction of coal, it like every other industry is subject to automation. So anyway, my point is like myth. The myth of McConnell's infallibility does us no good. Uh, and we saw it. We saw it here. I don't know the extent to which he had a choice on how to pursue uh, on how to pursue this strategy, but this did this did not work. And it's not part of some plan. It just failed. Yeah, which brings back you know a point that I've I've raised in the past. I think we actually talked about this with Whitney way back, like on our third or fourth show. How did the Republican Party not have a consensus, poll tested, bulletproof repeal and replace draft sitting in a desk drawer for the last six years? This has been the primary thing that they have all campaigned on since it was passed in what was it? 2011, 2010. And you'd think that they would just have something ready to go, you know, like day one, here's the thing that everybody agreed on when they, you know, got support from the RNCC when they were running for Congress or uh, um, the NRSC when they were running for the Senate, whatever it is, everybody agreed to this. And this is now what we're going to put into place. Everybody's on board. It's been poll tested. It's not, you know, a 10% disapproval. It's at 40% disapproval, you know, 40% approval. So great. So maybe they just weren't that serious about this all along, and they just found an easy boogeyman. Oh, look at that little craven politics. But on the flip side of that, where are the Democrats through all of this? You know, you have people again 
speaking of the resistance, who are like all ecstatic when they get to point out how Paul, Rand Paul and Ted Cruz are spitting in Mitch McConnell's face. You know, the enemy of your enemy is not your friend in this scenario. The enemy of your enemy currently wants to make things a whole hell of a lot worse. Yeah, you're the, en- the enemy of your enemy at the moment is a, is a psychopath. Right. <laughs> like, just, like just don't ever lose track of that. Right. And the fact that, again, and we said it, what, six times last week and several times the week before, the fact that the Democratic Party has still not come up with something and said, ACA is not perfect. Here are the six things we're going to fix immediately that will not affect the overall budget, but will have immediate impacts for people's costs structure or to open up more mar- open up more markets or whatever it might be is yeah. criminal. Yeah. And it's, and some of that, I think some of the reason that we haven't, that we don't have a good counterpunch. And I, I agree um, on, on that point. I think some of the reason that we don't have a good coordinated counterpunch, this is our alternative is the same reason that the Republican party may not have had the, like the, like the poll tested ready alternative in the drawer, which is that conflict between the, you know, if you want to call them the moderate Republicans, but the people who see what, see this bill for what it is. And just, this is, this is too far for us politically. I don't know if it's too far for them morally, only they know that. But this is too far for us politically. That conflict between that segment and the Freedom Caucus, you know, and hang them and flog them, you know, are there no workhouses, are there no prisons approach to public services? That conflict has always been there. And the and so it may be that that document wasn't written because it couldn't be written because what, what we were seeing now, no one wanted to open that can of worms until they absolutely had to. And I suspect that we may be seeing a version of that on the Democratic Party, although less so, because, you know, we've got something we can oppose. Great. Let's talk about that. Uh, there are, you know, I think it was Center for American Progress, I think it was, uh, released, a, you know, a series of suggestions for how to fix Obamacare. I, th- I think it was them. Anyway, there's this document that's been floating around the last couple of days. Uh, these are some fixes to Obamacare. None of them are sexy. They're, I mean, of course not. They're technocratic solutions to a, a system that has been good but is imperfect. That is one option. It is difficult to get behind that when there is a a not insubstantial portion, not just of the Democratic Party, but of the American electorate that is out there saying, you know what, let's let's give the single payer thing a a try. And I think it's not from, from the Democratic side. You could see there being behind it as a policy. I think for the most part, there is broader support for it. It's now polling extremely well. It's polling. It's like 46 or 48 percent. Uh, the single payer option is which is defined as single payer paid for by taxes. Uh, it's polling better than it ever has before. And the reason for it is I think partly that people support the idea of it, but a lot of it is the simplicity of it, right? This is healthcare can be provided at a reasonable cost. And it's a, it is a simple solution that gets away from the tech that gets away from the technocratic solutions that have been kind of banded about for Obamacare. I suspect that that's probably why we haven't seen Democrats coalesce around this yet. It's a possibility for sure. Uh, I just think that, you know, as we said last week, it's very difficult to resist but not advocate for something. And it seems to me to be, uh, I mean, time is a factor here because Mm -hmm. Trump is not supporting some of the things that need to be supported in this bill. Uh, There is an entirely reasonable possibility that the Republicans will give up on the replace part and just repeal the damn thing. Yeah. Um, it's an, yeah. It's and and if, you're, if you're not putting forward something else and look, I think that the trend of the country is probably in the direction of a single payer system, which is what terrifies the Republicans so much. And that may be the only thing that is unifying them in any way, shape or form. This idea that if we don't do this, 
we're going to have to cut a deal with the Democrats, and that's inevitably going to lead to a single payer system. I mean, they'd look at Medicare, Medicare, uh, Medicaid. I'm sorry, Medicaid, as mm. an absolute terrifying concept that the government is giving people free health care. Yeah, and it's and, and we've talked about the kind of the way that that sort of couched in these almost moralistic terms. Not almost; it's couched in literally moralistic terms. You know, you've got—I can't remember which elected official was saying. Well, you know, for people who've, you know, done things right and you know and kept their bodies healthy, you know, and, and there's this sort of notion that uh, you know, amongst certain parts of the Republican caucus, that the only thing that can lead to bad health is uh, is poverty-related obesity, right? Like that's why things get like like that like that's the only reason you could possibly get sick, right? Uh, which I have to congratulate them on having reached adulthood. Uh, you know, still believing in, in, you know, in a fantasy that absurd and grotesque. I mean, I, you know, it, it, Christmas morning must be a wonderful place as they marvel at this, uh, you know, not poverty related, obese dude in a red suit who goes down their chimney and gives them presents every year. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it is just as it is somehow, it is actually, it is significantly less credible actually than Santa Claus. Yeah. I mean, uh, you look and, at, and uh, here we are. Yeah. You, know. you look at somebody like, uh, um, what's a good example, Walter Payton, you know, mm-hmm. one of the best running backs of all time. Uh, perfect specimen of human health. Uh, even when he retired, uh, there was a there's a great thirty for thirty about the uh, the Super Bowl winning Chicago Bears. Everybody should check it out. It's one of the best thirty for thirties. But they're all talking about this reunion that they had, you know, fifteen years after they won the, the Super Bowl, whatever it was. And they were all talking, oh, this guy looked a little old. This guy was a little slow. But you know, Walter just looked glorious. Mm-hmm. And he was dead like a year later, and not from yeah. you know traumatic brain injury, which you know, again, when you play football, you're putting your body in harm's way. And according to Republicans, that's a risk you're running to run. Therefore, you know, we shouldn't be responsible for your health care and you should be responsible for more of it because you're making your life, taking your life risky. He died of some like bizarre kidney disease. Yeah. It's, I mean, thing, bad things happen. Bad to good things people. happen this, to good people. Bad and this things ul- happen to people who are in perfect health. Yeah. It, it happens all the time. And this is ultimately the truth. And I think that it, actually that that is really the, the, uh, the ultimate truth that there seems to be a segment of the Republican caucus that they just can't get their heads around, which is bad things happen to good people. It like you can do things right and it just doesn't come. And then there's a broader question about like, okay, like, you know, you know, is, does making a single mistake therefore disqualify you from like, from any degree of support or sucker and you should be left to die in the street. But even before we advance to that kind of really graduate level ethical thinking about whether one mistake means that you should be taken out back and shot, uh, we kind of need to get some of these people up to a point where it's sort of like where they understand that bad things happen to good people. And that's, and, and that, that is just an inevitability. Um, that's, you know, it is, we are not the first to think of this question. We will not be the last, but you know, again, and we, we've touched on this in the past, like there is uh, ideological and philosophical ground on which to stand pretty firmly about that particular perspective of the Republican Party. They can argue that up and down. I mean, it's an idealist world, but there is a way to argue for that. And then there's everybody else that argues, you know, we're a government, people pay taxes, we're all in this together. You know, if somebody else is sick, it's not good for me either. So we all, you know, people need to have a base level of care so everybody can be taken care of because it makes us all, makes the country stronger. You know, that's sort of the other, uh, the, the other side to look at it. What this current bill does is, is trying to have it every possible way. They're trying to take away Medicaid. They're trying to give the wealthy, you know, a break for doing the right things or inheriting the right money or having, you know, inbred. Or doing the wrong things and making money from it. Also, yes. Or, you know, being Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, the ultimate but, way, doing but, the wrong thing right. and making money from it. But it's, not, it's, but it's not ideologically consistent with the p- points that they have been pushing for years. 
because it's still you're basically they're touching around the edges of Obamacare essentially. You know, it's not so much repeal and replace. It's let's screw around on the margins to make ourselves feel better and make people's lives a lot worse, but and say that take credit for it, but we really haven't changed the structure of what we're dealing with. The yeah, exchanges we've just made, will still be open. Yeah, we've just made the existing structure completely unworkable. Like we haven't repealed right. it, we've just gutted it in such a way that it can't possibly function. Right. I mean it's yeah. essentially, you know, Republic you know, Democrats standing up and say, Hey, I have a really shitty idea for national health care. Okay, here's the ACA. Republicans standing up and say, I can make it even shittier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some that's exactly, there is a, like, this is not repeal and replace, this is outright sabotage. Yeah. Sabotage and loot. Which, I I mean, honestly, like, it's, I mean, it's got a certain ring to it. Yeah, who amongst us doesn't want want to be a pirate? That's, oh, man, I'm telling you, you know, we'll get back to it soon. We might be forced to at this goddamn rate. Yeah, all right, so I think we've uh, beaten healthcare to death. Pun kind of second intended. week, second week in a row second that I week in a row. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's, uh, we'll, you know, let's touch on a, you know, one or two other things and then we'll, we'll get to the interview with Matt. Um, yeah. Frank, you wanted to talk about Chicago, I think. Well, you know, I mean, that's my, my, uh, the, the, the city in which I went to university, uh, one of my, we, you know, the city that works, uh, as a former employee of, uh, then mayor Daly, I am uh, still contractually obliged to say that, uh, with its world-class cuisine, superhuman, uh, mayors and excellent architecture. Chicago truly is the city that works. Uh, so, um, Chicago, as we know, has a, a distinct and needless to say, quite tragic problem with gun violence. Uh, and, and the way that its problem has developed and continued, I think is, it's not unique, but it is distinct. Uh, and I mean, it's, it's, it is distinct to Chicago in the sense that the scale of it and the patterns by which it has sort of evolved and repeated are, are again, you find that outside of Chicago, but it is really very strongly identified with that particular city. Um, it, it, and in so doing, in having this problem, uh, besides the you know the intolerable uh, human costs, now uh, there is also uh, because I'm a hack, I have to find it the intolerable political cost, um, which is to say that there is a segment of the right that has used Chicago and Chicago's gun violence problem as a kind of handy political answer to just about everything, a way of focusing. Uh, you know, you know, as a way of focusing attacks on Democrats. Oh, if Democrats are so great, then why is Chicago in such trouble? You know, all of this stuff. Uh, you know, any any sort of question of social policy can be met with, but but Chicago, uh, and and it also I think there's to, to put it in in even more explicit terms. In the Republican political lexicon, uh, is is a dog whistle uh, so close that it's so close to human hearing that it's effectively just a just a whistle. Uh, you know, it's it's race it's race race politics at its at its worst in some respects. So, speaking of race politics at its worst, uh, President Trump uh, weighs weighed in just this morning with a tweet uh, saying he's sending federal help to Chicago to combat the violence. Uh, he's threatened to send the feds into Chicago. I'm not sure what he thinks that means. Presumably, he'd been watching watching uh, um, the untouchables. Uh, you know, the Untouchables. Thank you very much. Yeah, presumably he was thinking of Elliot Ness. Uh, yeah, Trump says he's yeah. So he's sending in the feds. He's previously threatened to send in the feds. Now he's saying he's sending federal help to Chicago uh, to combat uh, gun violence. No one knows quite what that means. Uh, But it seems like uh, everyone's best guess is that this this refers to a previously scheduled uh, detail of ATF agents uh, who have been deployed uh, to Chicago to deal with the the flow of guns that are causing this violence, uh, to help combat gun violence in that way. Uh, The irony here is, is... actually quite delicious. Yeah. I mean, the fact that a Republican president uh, 
leading a Republican Party that has control of both houses of government and most of the governorships around the country, the fact that he dug up the ATF's phone number is pretty remarkable. It's stunning. It's, this is exactly right. The ATF has long been the bete noir of the Republican Party. Uh, they've hated it for all sorts of reasons, in part because it's designed to control guns. Right. Uh, and and, and the NRA is your piggy bank. When the NRA is your piggy bank, and also is out there with you know with digital ads calling for civil war, uh, it's uh, you know it, it puts you in a somewhat awkward position. So uh, congratulations, uh, Donald Trump, for taking uh, for taking credit for. Uh, deploying the most, the agency most hated by the Republican Party. Uh, I, you know, I, I wish those agents extremely well. I hope they interrupt a lot of gun, a lot of uh, gun deals, uh, and and are successful in their mission. Uh, but this is just another example of of Trump taking what would otherwise be a reasonably good piece of, uh, you know, a reasonably you know promising but fairly workaday. Uh, a piece of law enforcement, uh, you know, work between federal and local, uh, and somehow managing to turn it into a something that glorifies him, and b gets on his favorite subject, which is of course uh, the uh, nightmarish uh, hellscape that is America, uh, that America has become without his leadership, and also we're going to toss in some nice race politics there. So super job, buddy. All right, we're we're here now with Matt Zeller, who's the co-founder of No One Left Behind and a fellow Truman National Security Project member. Uh, he's a great guy. We're going to talk to him about uh, the organization that he runs, uh, his experience running for Congress, um, and kind of everything that's going on in the world right now. So with that, Matt, thanks so much for being with us. Um, give us kind of the perspective, you know, where are you? How'd you get there? You know, your whole life kind of thing. Let us talk to us. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to, to chat with you. I, um, long and short, Ellie, I shouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. Um, the only reason you and I are even having this conversation is because my Afghan translator nine years ago shot and killed these two Taliban fighters who were about to kill me in a firefight. Um, at the time, I actually didn't even know the gentleman's name. I had met him 10 days prior and we had said all of about two sentences to each other, which was, hello, I look forward to working with you. My name is Matt. Um, and he said, hi, my name is Janice. I look forward to working with you as well. And then 10 days later, he was standing over me, having just shot and killed these two guys who were about to shoot me in the back. And I had asked him, you know, why he had done this, uh, you know, what compelled him to save my life by taking the lives of his countrymen. And he, he looked at me like I had asked him, why is the sky blue? You know, he, he said, you're a, you're a guest in my country. You you literally came from the other side of the planet to try to help give my family and I a better life. I'm honor bound to take care of you. If anyone gets shot in this scenario, it's me before you. And at that point I knew I had, I kind of met my guardian angel and uh, probably the most important Afghan I, you know, I was going to meet in the war. And so I I said, well, you're now, you're not working for me. And I want to let you know, I, uh, I owe you a life debt. So if, there's any way I can ever repay that, all you have to do is ask. Well, a year after I got home, he contacted me and uh, let me know that he had actually had a bounty placed on his head by the Taliban and that he was being hunted and wanted to know if I could help sponsor him for a visa. We see, it turns out about 10 years ago, at the tail end of the Bush administration, Senator Ted Kennedy, also at the very end of his life, decided to do one last heroic act. And so he, got, he, he literally got the Congress and the president to, to create something that had really never existed before, which was a specific visa program 
to allow the Iraqis and then a year later the Afghans who had served alongside us in the war and had now found themselves being hunted because of that service and their families being hunted and in jeopardy, they could avail themselves of our, of our charity and our generosity and, and, and apply to come live here forever. Uh, all they had to do was prove that they had served at least a year with our military, uh, meaning they had to get a letter of recommendation from someone like me in uniform. That service had to be deemed from someone like me as both honorable and valuable. And then they had to show that they, in fact, were in duress because of this service. And if they could sort of prove those two conditions, that they had served the requisite time at the requisite you know, quality, and that they were also then being, they were in danger because of that service, ultimately, they were able to then go on to the last step in the process, which was what we would quite honestly call extreme vetting. Um, they have to be individually screened by every single intelligence agency in our country. So the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, even the Drug Enforcement Agency has to do a review of their application. And it turns out that the decision to let them in the United States of America must be unanimous. If even one entity says, no, I, I, I dissent, we don't think they should be allowed to come here, then the applicant is barred from entering the United States forever. And they're actually placed on the no-fly list for the rest of their life. This is the most thorough vetting of any emigrate that we possibly can muster and, and in fact do. And so when I tell you that these are by far the most heavily screened you know, applicants coming to this country, I'm not speaking with any type of hyper, with any you know type of hyperbole or um, you know uh, I'm not I'm not making this up. I'm not adding extra emphasis. These people are the most thoroughly vetted folks that we bring into this country, and with good reason. They've earned their place to be here. And so I, when Janice asked me to sponsor him for this visa, I had, I I didn't hesitate. I said, sure, brother, absolutely naively thinking it might take six months, maybe a year. Well, four years later, we were still waiting on him to get his visa when he reached out and let me know that he was going to be laid off. And in so doing, he was going to lose the privilege of being able to live on the U.S. military base, which is where he had been living for that point years, basically under our care and protection so long as he kept doing the job. The problem was, was this was 2013 and we were substantially drawing down our force in Afghanistan. And so the base that he worked on was being turned over to the Afghan military. And he didn't need to live there anymore because the Afghans didn't need translators. So they were telling him he had to go. And he told me at that point that it, was, it would likely be only a matter of weeks before the Taliban caught up with him and his family and he would be brutally murdered. And so he said, brother, if you're going to make good on this promise, it's been four years, it's now or never. And so I actually called up you and other friends of mine at Truman. And I said, what do I do? You know, how do I get the story out there? How do we change this, this tragedy? You know, how do we prevent it from happening? How do we change the narrative here? And the advice was, well, we, we're probably going to have to shame the government into doing the right thing. And so I went back to Janice with that and I told him the risks. And he said, brother, if this is the only option I have, let's do it. And so we we put some of the news stories out there and, and, and uh, a fellow friend suggested that we start a change.org petition. And what ended up happening was, was these news stories and the change.org petition eventually attracted some serious journalists to, to take a look at it. 
And uh, Yahoo News decided to make it their cover story on a, on a Friday in September of 2013. And in so doing, the petition we started generated over 100,000 signatures. And 48 hours later, Janice calls me from Afghanistan to tell me that his visa has been issued and he's coming to America. Month later, he arrives in the United States. And at this point, I've got a CBS News crew following us around wanting to film our reunion. And it was at the airport that I learned something. Despite all the promises of taking care of these people and telling them that they will be welcome to a new life in the United States, the reality was it was going to be incumbent upon me to find him a home and furnish that home and get him a job and help his children get enrolled into school and his wife into English classes. And I was at the going through a very bitter divorce at the time and just didn't have the personal finances or energy to take on supporting an, an entire other family. I could have him stay in my home for maybe a month or so, but at that point we would have been basically on top of each other and they, you know, they deserve to have their own place here. And so I, I was also apoplectic when I learned that they were only allowed to come to this country with one suitcase per person. It had to be under 50 pounds and sit in an overhead flight bin. And so, you know, they didn't arrive with large sums of cash or precious items that they can sell to you know, convert into currency when they need it. They came with the family Quran and the only photos of relatives that they own because the relatives died before the advent of digital cameras. And so they literally have, you know, black and white prints of relatives that have long departed. And these are the only visual records of their existence. You know, they brought the tangible items of their heritage that they're going to pass on to their children because they know that this is the only physical connection to where they came from, that the, they and their, their children and their children's children will likely ever have because they're probably never going to get to return to Afghanistan. And that was it. it. That's all they had with them. They didn't have winter clothing. They didn't have linens. They didn't have cookware. They didn't have toys, books, nothing. They just had these family heirlooms and, and, and a hope that somehow the American people were going to live up to this promise and take care of them. And, and yet there was no one there. There was no one from the government. There was no one there from another charity to help out. It was just me and the CBS camera crew. And so I, I have a mouth and I, I sometimes know how to use it. And so I grabbed the camera crew and I said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a GoFundMe page. Can you let folks know that we're going to try to raise him and his family some money to help get their new lives started? And they said, sure. Three days later, I had been able to find him a modest two-bedroom apartment basically down the road from me, right outside of Washington, D.C., where we now live. And I had been able to furnish it through the generosity of, again, people like you, my friends and family from the, the D.C. area and particularly from our Truman family. And so I had gone out to buy him some cookware from Target along with some groceries, and I figured I'd stop by the bank on the way back to his apartment and see how much money he maybe had trickled into the account. I was shocked to find that there was $35,000 in the account, most of it from complete strangers. And I went back to his place and I, and I entered and I was greeted by a very excited Janice. He ran up to me and he said, brother, I didn't know that you had so many beggars in America. But what I, what I don't understand is why are they all dressed as, in, in weird clothing and children? And why do they keep coming to our door asking for candy? And I realized I hadn't explained to him what Halloween was. And it was Halloween. 
And I said to him, oh, my God, what have you been doing when they come to your door? And he goes, well, we don't have any candy. So, and he pulls out a wad of $1 bills. And he says, we've been handing out this. And he was handing out $3 to each person at a time. It was all the money he had in life. And I realized at that moment, like he's giving away literally the food, the money that he has to buy food for his family. And I said, Janice, you got to stop that. It's Halloween. You're supposed to give out candy. You're probably become the most popular house on the block because you're, you're giving out real cash. Now you, we got to turn off the lights and pretend like you're not home. It's a, it's an amazing American tradition that you now get to be a part of. But I said, brother, listen, don't worry about the little bit of cash that you have handed out because I got something for you that I think is going to, is really going to make you feel better. Cause I got to tell you, he at this point was really worried about how he was going to pay his month's rent and, and buy, provide for his family. He, he had no idea what to do. And I, I pulled out a check that I had written while I was at the bank from the account for $35,000. And I put it in front of him and I said, Janice, this is a, a gift from the American people. It's in thanks in exchange for your eight years of frontline combat service. He served eight years on our behalf, Elliot, eight. And I said, look, man, it's not enough, nearly enough to cover the debt that this country owes you and your family for your service to us. But I got to tell you, this is at least enough to cover your rent and your food for the next year. And so what I want you to do is I want you to do me a favor. I want you to put your feet up on the table and I want you to play with your kids. And I want you to go to bed tonight and breathe easy because no one is trying to come and kill you anymore. You're safe. And we've got your back. And Ellie, what I haven't told you at this point is I'm actually one of five Americans that can point to this gentleman and say, that's my guardian angel. I don't know the other four. I've never served with them in the military. And more importantly, none of us actually ever served together in the military. We all served in different units, different years of the war. And yet to a person, we each can point to Janice and say, well, I'm only alive today because that guy killed a bad guy who was about to kill me. And so I tell you this because Janice hasn't had an easy life either. He, he was born the year after the Soviet Union invaded his country. He's been on the runner fighting ever since. Uh, he, he's basically known only profound suffering. And yet when I tried to give him the first real handout he had ever received in life, the first real lucky break, a man who had been giving out the wad of $1 bills to complete strangers because he thought they needed it more, looked me in the eye, thought about accepting $35,000 for maybe all of half of a heartbeat and says, brother, I can't take the money. And I got to tell you, you know, I have a propensity for talking a lot. I was rendered silent. My, my mouth just dropped. And I, I finally, when I was able to sort of get my composure, said, well, what do you want me to do with the cash, man? Because there's not a refund button. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think we can return it. What do you, people gave it for you. What do you want me to do with it? And then he got really serious. And he looked me right in the eye. And he said, well, what about Hassan and Latif and Maiwand and Jamshid and Habib? He was naming off some of the other translators who were still serving back on the outpost that we had all met up at in Ghazni, Afghanistan all those years ago. I said, what about them? And he said, well, don't they deserve to be here too? He had a really good point. They did. So I said, brother, what would you have me do with this money? And he said, well, can we use it to start an organization to do for them what you've done for me to help them get their visas? And then when they get here, pick them up from the airport, greet them, make them feel welcome, find them a place to live and furnish it like you have been able to do for my family. 
And I would eventually go on to get him a car and a job. And I kind of acted as sort of what we would now later call his first friend for his first couple of years here. And just helping answer any question he might have. You know, there's no manual to being an American citizen. It's not like at some point somebody sat you down and said, all right, Ellie, here are the social norms you got to follow. And, oh, by the way, your, your taxes are due on April 15th. I, all of that you guys kind of picked up as you went along. He has to get a crash course. And so he had a lot of questions. And, you know, sometimes those questions can, quite frankly, feel dumb to ask, but they're really important to do so. And so we always describe our first friends as the person who's there to answer every question that you're just too afraid to ask anybody else. And I, what I, what, in Janice asking us to, to sort of pay this gift forward, I, I naively thought, sure, maybe we can try to get a couple of the guys over it. Well, that was three and a half years ago. We now have chapters in 10 American cities. This is what I do full time for a living. And I'm really proud of what our team's been able to accomplish thanks to Janice's charity. Because in those 10 American cities, we've helped out over 5,000 people. We've helped them arrive in this country. We've greeted them at the airport. We've found them a place to live. We've paid for their rent for 90 days. We've fully furnished their homes at no cost to them. We've bought them cars. We've found them jobs. And we've most importantly found an American family to help mentor and guide each of them and make them feel welcome in their new homes in this country. And we're not, we're just getting started, quite frankly. I, I've been spending the last month up on the Hill in Congress trying to get them to pay attention to a couple of issues surrounding the fact that the program, while working, could work a whole lot better. And there are a couple of things that we could do that are, quite frankly, legislative layups that would, in reality, unleash the American people's ability to support these people and not really cost us a dime when it comes to taxes. Uh, or government spending. Um, we could probably talk about that, I'm sure, a little bit later. But yeah, so that's, in a nutshell, how I got here and why I'm still here in the first place. And I, I'll tell you, man, I, um, I, I tell everybody who will listen, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm, I feel like, in a way, I'm on borrowed or extra time, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to waste it, you know? I think it, it, it's, it would be a a profound discredit to Janice's service to do otherwise. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's a powerful story. And every time I hear it, I get a, I get a little weepy and, and, and what you're doing for Jan, what you did for Janice, and what you're doing for all the other um, translators who are all the other Terps who are coming over. You're, you're really, uh, it's, it's, it's the Lord's work quite literally. And I, I'm very honored to be uh, on the advisory board for no one left behind. Do you want to just give everybody the website real quick and then we'll get on with some more questions. Yeah, and we're honored to have you. A lot of folks don't know Ellie has been just instrumental in helping us with with a bunch of, well, quite frankly, keeping the program alive for the last couple of years, but helping us with our communications with members of Congress. Um, a lot of people don't realize this program has to basically be annually reauthorized, which is insane, because the war doesn't have to be annually reauthorized. We just seem to just blindly pass spending without any question, but yet when it comes to this vital program of national security, for some reason, the Congress requires every year for us to beg and plead and justify his existence. And we only are able to do so as eloquently as we do, thanks to you, Ellie. So we, we, we graciously love your, your, your support. But the website is uh, noonelef.org, N-O-O-N-E-L-E-F-T.org. We're also on Facebook. Um, we're always looking for volunteers. You can volunteer anywhere in the country, even if you don't exist, live in one of the cities where we have a chapter. We, we've got ways for people to virtually assist. So if folks out there want to get on uh, get on board, just uh, send us an email. All of our email addresses are listed on the website. 
And you guys also take uh, clothing donations and furniture donations, all that other kind of stuff also, right? Yeah, clothing, furniture, toys for kids. I, I'm a dad of a young child myself, so, you know, as, as she's become, you know, uh, a little girl as opposed to a toddler, we're always recycling, you know, couple-year-old toys, and what we do is just give it to no one left behind because every one of these families are arriving with young children. So, um, you know, any age range, we're interested. Yeah, and uh, people should, uh, again, it's nooneleft.org. Uh, your donations are tax-deductible. It's a great organization. It's really well-run. Um, I wouldn't be involved with it if it wasn't a great cause and I didn't respect and and uh, I'm really I'm honored to be a part of it. Um, and it's run very, very well. Um, every every dollar is maximized, so people should feel very proud about donating to the cause. Uh, Matt, let's take a couple steps back. So, um, sure. you finished college and you decided to join the army. What year is that, and what kind of led to no, that decision? I, I, actually, I uh, <laughs> I actually dropped out of college technically to join the army. Um, a lot of people don't know this. Uh, I was 19. I was, when 9/11 happened. And um, I'm a New Yorker, a proud New Yorker. Now, I'm not from your part of New York. I'm from upstate. Um, but my family has been in upstate New York since, as we kind of jokingly, but literally say, since we took it from the natives. <laughs> um, my, my family's been in this country basically since we arrived after being kicked out of Scotland in the late 1760s. And family lore has it that when we landed somewhere in Rhode Island, um, the colonists there asked us if we knew how to fight the English, and we basically responded with, I, we know how to fight the English, what do you want us to do? And uh, they asked us if we wouldn't mind helping them fight the English, and we said, sure, not a problem. And so I, I, my family's military services traced back nine generations. Um, so when 9-11 happened, the, the first thing I actually thought of was with my grandfather, who joined the Navy on December 8, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor. And I thought about whether or not I would be dishonoring a, a profound history of family service if I didn't join immediately after our, our generation's Pearl Harbor. I wasn't the only cousin in my family to feel this way. Ultimately, I was one of three who kind of joined around the same time. So my cousin Peter went to the Army. My cousin Brian went to the Marines. But I, I ended up, my best friend from college was here. He'd tell you he left me alone in a mall for 10 minutes. And when he came back, I enlisted. And that's pretty much what happened. I walked up to the first recruiter I saw in uniform and, and then joined the United States Army. I went to, I finished up my sophomore year with the full intention of going off into the active army. I went to basic training my summer between sophomore and junior year of college at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And, um, went, and um, my uh, MOS was a 11 hotel, which was shooting a tow missile off of the back of a Humvee. And what ended up happening was, was I was supposed to go off to get trained up on that when they got rid of the MOS. And they said, uh, you got to reclass, meaning you gotta, you're gonna have to do something else. And they offered me uh, two jobs that I really had no interest in. I wanted to be in the infantry and fight, but they said they, they, needed, some, they needed people with intelligence to do office and clerical work and stuff. And then the other option was, because I had demonstrated leadership, I could either go to officer's candidate school or I could go back to college via the ROTC program and they would cover the rest of my tuition. So I, I took the last door, the one where the Army paid for the rest of college, and I got to go back to school and ultimately commission. So I actually commissioned uh, the, day I the day before I graduated college 
And um, I was supposed to go off to, to, to do active duty when I, I won this fellowship called the Boren Fellowship, which pays for grad school as long as you learn a language critical to national security and, and then agree to serve a number of years within the national security apparatus of the, the federal government. And so the Army said, look, if someone else is going to pay or cover a bit of grad school and you ultimately come out of this with a master's degree, from our standpoint, that would... That would, so that would qualify you for your necessary civilian education all the way up through lieutenant colonel. So by all means, go ahead and do that. So I ended up going to the Maxwell School at Syracuse for grad school. And then while I was there, I, I, I got recruited into the CIA. And um, my Army career took a vastly different turn after that. Yeah, can we talk about that next? I didn't know if we were, if we were allowed to talk about your, your sure. days in the no, CIA. No, I got... I, I got outed, so I can I can talk a little <laughs> bit about it. <laughs> um, so um, is, I never I never get to go back and work for the CIA again. So we can we can definitely talk a little bit about it. I, I probably <laughs> something they can't discuss. But so you you finish grad school, uh, you get this, uh, you get the opportunity to go into the CIA, and, and then what happens? So I moved down to Washington, um, uh, January of two thousand and seven. And uh, I was actually working at the DIA for six months while I waited for my CIA clearance to go through. And um, once it did, I, jo- I joined the agency in July of, of the summer of 2007. And on my second day on the job, I came home to the apartment I was living in in Arlington, Virginia at the time, to find in my mailbox a big brown envelope from the Department of the Army. And inside were deployment orders to Afghanistan. Um, this whole time I had been simultaneously a member of a national guard unit out of New York. Um, ironically, the same guard unit that my great grandfather deployed with in world war one <laughs> in France as a cavalry officer. And, uh, <clears throat> they were being sent to Afghanistan on what's known as a train advise and assist mission or uh, foreign internal defense. It's, it's typically a mission performed by special forces. But we were going to be embedded with elements of the Afghan army and police to live and work alongside them and ultimately hopefully train them one day to be able to take over the fight and no longer obligate our men and women to be there, basically doing it for them. Um, So I I went back into work the next day and sat down with my boss and explained to them that I had just gotten these deployment orders. And I'll never forget, they asked me, they said, do you want to go? And I said, well, I didn't think it was an option. I mean, like, there's orders. I got to go. And they said, mm, we can get you out of these. Would you like to, you know, do, do you want to go do this? Because quite frankly, you're needed more here than you are there. There's a lot of lieutenants in the Army. There's only so many of you in the, in the company. And I thought about it for a second. And I said, you know, I've been training with this unit now for the past three to four years. And I, I joined because of Afghanistan, because of 9-11. I, I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't. So I, I want to take this deployment. So the deal was, was that I got to go so long as I came back and did a debrief and some other things. Um, and that they would not, and that they would accelerate me through training so that way I would be as best prepared as possible when I did go downrange. So that's what ended up happening. Um, I went to Afghanistan in, uh, in April of 2008, but I actually left for training in January of 2008. Spent uh, four months basically at Fort Riley, Kansas, being trained to do this mission. 
and was in Afghanistan from April 2008 all the way up until Christmas Day. Um, that was the day we, we left Afghanistan to come back, make our journey back to the United States. I got back to the U.S. Uh, right before New Year's, did a literally uh, a five-day demobilization at Fort Riley. So as my father said when he picked me up from the airport that night uh, when I flew back to D.C., we went to uh, get a beer at this Irish pub that I loved. And I'll never forget, we're just sitting there, and my old man looked at me, and he goes, I can't imagine what you must be going through. He said, they spent two years training you basically for this mission, and they only took five days to let you back into the world. He just, he couldn't understand how that was. And, you know, and he was, I didn't realize how, how right at the time he was, how absurd that was. We, we probably should have been decompressing amongst ourselves for months. I, I later learned the Germans, believe it or not, who were our allies in Afghanistan, when their soldiers come back home to Germany, they actually take the soldiers as a unit to a resort that the German government has built for the military. And these guys get to basically hang out at this resort for like two months, just decompressing along with each other before they're ultimately reintroduced to their families and the society around them. And I, we probably should have gone through a similar experience. There was no way five days was nearly enough to prepare us for like just the shock of returning to civilian life. And, and I didn't, I didn't leave the war. I basically took th a three week break because two weeks later, you know, I'm back in the United, I'm back in the United States at the beginning of January. Two weeks later, I watched President Obama's inauguration in person. And the next day I was back to work at CIA. And two days later, I was transferred to an office that was specifically working on Afghanistan because I, w I had now all of this practical real world experience that they wanted to take advantage of. And I was there until basically for the next year and a half until I finally decided I wanted to do this crazy thing and run for Congress back in my family's ancestral home in New York. Yeah, you're making the next jump for me. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, Congress, then you know, we'll wrap up in a couple minutes. Sure. Um, well, here's what happened. I, um, this all goes back to Afghanistan again. Uh, my aunt, my mother's sister is a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Again, gets traced back to our ancestor, Joseph Green, who was a colonel in the Continental Army, served directly under uh, General Washington, and was one of the first federal judges in the country, huh. in New York, actually. Um, yeah, so my aunt um, and her members of the Daughters of the American Revolution, out of Canandaigua, New York, which is where we all are from, um, she and them had knitted these wool hats for my, our soldiers to use. And we used to hand out these hats to kids because it turns out the United States military sent us to war with fabulous winter weather gear, these wonderful fleece knit you know, caps that to this day I still use in the winter. So we didn't need the, the, the wool hats that my aunt and her fellow DAR members were sending us, but they didn't know that. And we didn't tell them to stop sending them because it turned out they had an amazing use. Every time we would go to a village, we would give out these hats to kids. Now, even though we were giving them out in spring and summer, the parents knew their value come winter. And their parents eventually came to see our unit as the Americans who brought their children winter clothing. And so, you know, a couple of times we would stop in a village, we'd hand out the, 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 the hats and stuff, and then we'd leave the village and on our way out, we'd get attacked. 
one of our vehicles, we'd get hit by an IED, we'd get shot at. And usually the, the ramification of that experience was we didn't go back to that village for quite some time. You know, why go kick the hornet's nest again? That wasn't our mission. We weren't there to take the fight to the enemy. We were there to, to help bridge the, 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 the chasm between the Afghan people and the, the Afghan security forces that were supposed to be defending them and, and while simultaneously improving the capabilities of those security forces. That really didn't give us a whole lot of firepower. We were, you know, we were very limited in number. So the, when we eventually did go back to these villages, I, I'll never forget, this happened time after time, the parents would come out and they would say to me through Janice, why haven't you been back? We've been waiting on you. You, you, you were supposed to come back weeks ago with more hats. And we would say, well, you remember the last time we were here, we got attacked. That makes us very reluctant to come back. I, I don't want to put my men in jeopardy just because you need hats, you know, if it's too dangerous to come here, I'm sorry, but we'll have to clear this area first before you can come back. And they would always respond with, oh, that's why you're not coming back? Listen, when you leave today, you know the road that you came in on and that you're probably planning on leaving on? Don't take that road. The Taliban's going to attack you on that road. They tell us every time you come to use the side road over here that only the locals know about. They won't hit you on that road. You'll totally be fine. Just take that road. In fact, they're probably planning to attack you around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and you'll be down over there. It was that specific level of intel because the Taliban would roll into the village immediately after we'd leave and be like, all right, so we all are understanding if the Americans come back, we're going to attack them down here. Just stay away from the kill zone. We don't want any of you to get hurt. Well, these hats inevitably saved the lives of countless of my soldiers, just because every time we'd make friends with them and people came to value our presence. So I wanted to thank these women for what they did. And so I went back home to upstate New York in uniform to give them like a formal presentation. And I ended it with pictures of every single wedding and birth that had occurred since we had gotten home from the guys in my unit, because I wanted them to see their legacy of their knitting because in their way their knitting was a war effort and I don't think they realized how much of their how profound their contribution exactly was there wasn't a dry eye you know afterwards it was a very myself included it was a very emotional you know afternoon and they were very gracious and warm and receptive and then they eventually I had to turn around and go back down to DC and so I was driving back down I decided to take the scenic route down along the shores of Canandaigua Lake. And if you've ever driven the route, it eventually runs right into this little town called Naples. And Naples is kind of like the epicenter of this awesome festival from where I'm from called Grape Festival, which takes place at the end of summer, beginning of fall, right around the grape harvest in the Finger Lakes. And it's, you know, they have grape pie and grape cookies and grape ice cream. And it's just a big celebration of the community that is this part of upstate New York, which is to me home. And every time I was in a battle in Afghanistan, this is what I thought about. I thought about the shores of the Finger Lakes and my family's farm in Victor, New York, and my, my, my relatives there. That's why, you know, if I needed to like envision why am I putting myself through this danger, it was those images that would come instantly into my head. And Naples was among them. So you could imagine my shock when I'm driving through this. It's a tiny little town. It doesn't even have a stoplight, right? There's one hardware store. 
Johnson's Hardware. I'm driving through, and there's a sign in the window that says, closing our business after 80 years, 90% off of all inventory, everything must go. And I, I stopped, and I had to talk to the owner because this is the only hardware store for like anywhere in 50 miles. And it was the hardware store that my grandfather had brought me to, my dad and everything. So I, I got out, and I, I walked in, and there's the fourth generation of Mr. Johnson. And I asked him, I said, what's going on? He goes, oh, I heard you were home. Welcome back. You know, thanks for your service, all that stuff. And I said, no, talk to me about the sign. What's going on? And he said, what's the damnedest thing? We, we you know, the, the, the market crashed while you were overseas. And, uh, well, we, all the contractors around here suddenly lost their work because nobody's building. So there's no more demand for supply right now. So we don't have any customers. And he goes, this happened once before. It was the Great Depression. And we went and we were able to get a small business continuation loan from the local bank and, and we made it through just fine. And we, we had to do that once more in the 70s, but that's it. We, we've never had to take out more than two loans. We always pay back our bills, you know, if not early, if not on time. So I don't understand why the bank won't lend to me now, but they, they just won't. And we're going out of business. We just, we, we are not going to be able to make it. And the, the ram of the impact on this, tiny little hardware store was going to be tremendous because that meant that anybody in the area in 50 miles was going to have to drive even further to get supply, which was going to raise the cost on everything from construction to repairs and ultimately just continue to exacerbate the poor people who live in this part of the world where unemployment is in the 20 to 30% range and their cost of living is among the highest of the nation in terms of their taxes and their cost of their energy because their infrastructure is so old. It's in desperate need of being revitalized. And it just angered me because it turned out that the local bank had been bought out by a much larger bank that will remain nameless. And um, I was angry. I, was just, I didn't understand why, why they weren't doing right by Mr. Johnson. So I, I got back in my car and I turned on NPR. I just happened to catch a report of a bunch of senators who were grilling a bunch of the senior Wall Street executives uh, about the, uh, the bank bailouts of 2008, about the $880 billion that we as taxpayers had given to them because they had told the government that if they didn't have $880 billion in liquid assets, that they would not be able to lend to small business America and the American economy would collapse. And that clearly as evidenced by Mr. Johnson's story and experience, they weren't lending. They weren't giving it out. And so it was just serendipitous that I was listening to this report because one of the senators was asking these senior executives what they had done with all of the money, what, since it was clear that they weren't lending to small businesses. And there was a lot of hemming and hawing, and then the senator finally interjected with, I'll tell you what you've done. You gave out last year over $120 billion in bonuses. How can you justify that? And there was silence before finally one of the executives, and I can only imagine this because I was listening to it, probably leaned forward and said in his mic, well, Senator, we're trying to retain talent. And I started punching my dashboard, yelling, I didn't fucking go to war for that guy. Because it was true. I went to war for Mr. Johnson. And Mr. Johnson busted his ass his whole life. And he didn't get a bonus when the economy crashed. He lost all of his customers. And he went to the bank out of refuge as a last resort, being told that there would be a place for him there. And yet there wasn't even though that's exactly why we, the American people, allowed $880 billion of our dollars to just be given away. And I realized no one was fighting for Mr. Johnson. So when I got home, I just, I, 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 another moment of serendipity, I bumped into a college buddy of mine 
who said, you know, I got to tell you, if you're ever thinking of making a change, we could really use you running for Congress. I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you're not supposed to know this yet, but your local hometown congressman, Eric Mass, is about to resign in a sex scandal. There's going to be a vacancy back home. You should throw your hat into the ring. What do you have to lose? And so I ultimately took a chance and I, I never thought it would pan out, but I was able to convince the party that I was the poor sap, the poor bastard to, to basically inherit this congressman's, you know, horrible legacy that he was leaving behind and all of the baggage associated with it. And I was told up front, you're going to lose by 30 to 40% and you're going to have no party support. And, you know, this is basically a fool's errand, but I, I couldn't not do it. Mr. Johnson deserves better. And if there was a chance that I could, I could make a difference for not him, his, his store was clearly gone, but the other Mr. Johnson's of our district, which is the size of Connecticut, by the way, I, I at least had to try. And I wasn't just going to give it up because somebody told me that it wasn't winnable. So we only lost by 6%. Uh, we got pretty damn close, despite the fact that it was 2010 and, you know, a horrible year for Democrats running. Um, my, my favorite statistic is Ike Skelton, who was the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee at the time and ran in a Democratic district, lost by a greater margin of votes and a greater number of votes than I did. And I ran in an R plus five, R plus five district at the time. Yeah. And we're we going to eminently winnable seat. Yeah. We're going to have to d dive into your, your congressional run and the lessons learned and all that other good stuff. Uh, when we have you back in a couple of weeks, uh, Frank and I have to spend some time setting up the disaster of the democratic party. And then we can start talking to people who have actually experienced it. Um, but to wrap you know this, what you should do, yeah. you should get John Plum and I on in tandem because we both are Truman and we both ran for the same seat. He ran in 2014, in 2016, I ran in 2010. And it'd be nice to give, you know, sort of a bookend experience of, of what, you know, lessons learned. Yeah, that's actually a great idea. Um, I will have to, you know, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll have to check that out. That's a great idea. Um, but Matt, before I let you go, um, as we wrap, wrap this up, we like to leave a couple minutes for what we call a lightning round. Uh, so it's just real fast, super quick responses. Um, you can choose one or you can give uh, answers to all, but what's the best book, TV show, or movie you've read or seen lately? Oh, boy. Um, best TV show I've seen has been A Handmaid's Tale. Okay. Uh, it's not that. So I would give two answers to it. It's, it's A Handmaid's Tale, but it's not bingeable. You, you can kind of only take it one episode a week because it's just – it's too much of what Mike Pence probably dreams about in envisioning <laughs> for America's future. And that's just too frightening at this point. Uh, so if you, I would say start off with Handmaid's Tale and then, and then go to bed by watching an episode of A Master of None yeah. uh, on Netflix. Aziz Ansari's show. It is, it is, it's not just television, it's art. Yeah, agreed. Um, okay, uh, next question is uh, your favorite drink, alcoholic or not? Uh, bourbon. All right. Any specific brand? Uh, I'm, I'm, if I could afford it, uh, Blanton's all day, every day. Um, <laughs> but I can't So makers mark. Yep. I've had many a makers with you. Uh, all right. I probably know the yep. answer to question number three, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, in the Trump era, lots of people are interested in doing something. What's an organization you're supporting? Uh, and I think we've already heard why you're supporting it. <laughs> 
You know, there's this amazing organization called No One Left Behind. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever heard of it. Uh, but you should check them out. They're at noonelef.org, and uh, they could use all the support your listeners could, could give. Great. And then the last question, uh, Frank usually asks this, uh, where can people follow you uh, on the Internet, Twitter, anything like that? I'm, uh, I'm, on, I'm on the Twitter. Uh, I'm at, at Matt C. Zeller. Uh, Matt Zeller, there's another Matt Zeller out there. He's a consultant in Florida. Uh, he beat me to it. Um, I don't, I, though he, he constantly pings me and he's like, dude, you've got to stop like kidding him. You got to stop getting our name out there. Everyone keeps <laughs> thinking it's me. I was like, man, I'll trade tw- Twitter handles with you. And he's like, no, nah, man, you're at Matt C. Zeller. I'm at Matt Zeller. So at Matt C. Zeller is, uh, me on Twitter. I'm on Facebook as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Great. But Facebook is, uh, like the public page. Got it. So. Got it. All right, Matt, this has been terrific. Um, and again, everybody should check out No One Left Behind, noonelef.org. Uh, money, volunteer time, volunteer uh, um, clothing, books, uh, kitchen equipment, furniture, cars, anything that you can think of that somebody who literally is coming to this country with nothing could, could need. So, uh, Matt Zeller, thanks so much for your service, for everything you're doing with No One Left Behind, and thanks for joining us on Taking Ship. Thanks for having me, Ali. I appreciate it. That's our show for the week. Thanks so much for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in phenomenology. Next week, we're going to be joined by our good friend Xander Mice, who, besides being one of the smartest people we know, is another Truman member and our go-to source for all things judicial. We'll be talking to her about the latest Supreme Court term and what to expect over the coming term. Uh, It'll be really, really good, and we will have her on for a good deal of time because there's a lot of questions to ask her. With that, Frank, where are we headed? This week, we take a nice river cruise to Illinois, the land of Lincoln, home of the... Can this be right? All right, if you say so. Home of the world champion Chicago Cubs and uh, a less than world championship budget. Illinois is now approaching its third uh, consecutive year without a budget, the result of a long-running fight between uh, Republican Governor uh, Bruce Rauner and the Illinois legislature, which is led by House Speaker Michael Madigan. Rauner was elected to basically be Scott Walker, uh, governor of Wisconsin, uh, presumably, although presumably Scott Walker without the endless ham sandwiches. But his uh, anti-union plans came a cropper in Illinois, uh, where the unions are more robust and uh, perhaps not coincidentally, Democrats more readily remember that they are in fact Democrats. Uh, so the, this, they've been at loggerheads for three years now, uh, two and a half, coming on three years. The state is now threatening to financially come apart at the seams. Uh, And so uh, Ellie and I do not call us heroes, but also do not not call us heroes, are heading up, are heading out there to replace Bruce Rauner with a man who knows something about how to succeed in Illinois and also shares Rauner's spirit for uh, taking working enterprises and running them straight into the goddamn ground. That's right, folks. Please, we welcome aboard uh, Governor Phil Jackson, misunderstood in his own time and in his and, and in New York. Uh, Phil Jackson will arrive in Illinois, immediately install the triangle offense, and commence to alienate his best talent. Illinois public servants, now would be a good time to think about waiving your no-trade clauses. Friends, we take ship now for Illinois. Take care, everybody.